zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Tim, released September 17, 1981. It was written by Michael Pate, based on the novel by Colleen McCullough, directed by Pate, and released by Greater Union Film Distribution. So this is an Australian release. Colleen McCullough's novel Tim was published in 1974, and a year later, Michael Pate read the book and rushed to option the movie rights, later adapting the novel to a screenplay and directing himself. The film shot in six weeks on a budget of $600,000 from the Australian Film Commission grant and took in just over $800,000 in the box office. That's pretty good. Yeah. It was critically beloved, and it earned AFI acting nominations for Mel Gibson and Kurtz and Evison playing his parents. The story was readapted into a 1996 TV movie called Mary and Tim for the Hallmark Channel, starring Candace Bergen and Tom McCarthy, available on YouTube now. <laughs> we start with a full blue screen with white credits, which is how we will finish the film as well. Yeah, it was a very interesting choice. Yeah. You know, you know me and my credits and color schemes. I feel like we saw this sp- specific scheme. I think it was Endless Love. I think that it was blue background with white letters, which we thought was strange. Well, I, I'm just, if I see that, I'm just going to assume it's like a Metro Goldwyn Mayer or a... Uh, was Samuel Goldwyn. Oh, that's or, what I mean. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's a Samuel Goldwyn thing. And, uh, or did Viacom also use blue for a while? I think they did, yeah. Sony Picture Classics. Buena yeah. Vista. It was just super popular. Yeah. Piper Laurie as Mary Horton is driving home. A construction crew is parked outside her neighbor's house. She checks her mailbox and her neighbor comes to chat. Right away, we have a glaring issue. Either this is a bad transfer, and something was lost in translation from the film to the Blu-ray, or the people editing this film have never heard of room tone, so any moment people aren't talking, the track is dead quiet. It's particularly infuriating when you turn up the volume on your television expecting you have it too low, and suddenly the characters are screaming at you. (laughs) This happens a number of times throughout the movie where the audio just drops out completely, and I was like to complete just, silence yeah I, I was just like like turning my ears like did, did did something happen yeah if there was a razzie for sound editing this movie would win fucking all of them because it made me so angry so many times it's probably worse because you watched this one with noise canceling headphones i did and you're yeah. like it's, it's very so disorienting awkward. i started to turn into a monkey like william hurt <laughs> <laughs> sensory deprivation <laughs> The neighbor apologizes for the dust from the construction and offers one of her workmen to hose down the plants. The crew have left a young man named Tim, played by Mel Gibson, to take care of cleanup. The neighbor notices Tim is always the last man working and offers him a polite hello. Good looking, isn't he? Not over bright, mind you, but a nice kid. Mary looks surprised to be put in the position of responding to this. She tries to distract herself with her mail, but her neighbor keeps talking about Tim. Her mail. <laughs> mail. And it actually typoed with the talk to text the first time. I had to fix it. Tim stares at Mary a bit and waves, but she doesn't wave back. Sometime later, Mary steps out on her porch with a drink and finds Tim cleaning up after having hosed down the plants. She thanks him for the work and invites him to come back, 
since her gardener injured his back and is unavailable to attend to her yard. He seems excited at the offer, and she asks him to return the following morning. We follow him to a local bar where he finds his father and father's friends. They slide him a glass of beer, and he chugs it instantly. He tells them how his workday went, and that he got a new job taking care of a nice lady's garden. Dad's friends try to make lewd jokes, and Dad has no patience for it. And where does she want a grass cut, Tim? Front, back, or otherwise, eh? <laughs> Shut your big trap, Billy. Tim don't understand that kind of talk. Sorry, Ron, I was only kidding. Well, don't. Tim describes his new client as an older lady, and his father is proud of him for finding work on his own. Tim and Dad head home and find the table already set for dinner. Tim's mother is frustrated they're so late, and claims that it's ruined as a result. She sets down a plate of fish and chips for each of them. The boys bought a couple of beers to go from the bar, and Dad cracks one open when Mom leaves to get back to her TV show in the den. The next morning at 7.01, Mary is awoken by the sound of Tim knocking at her door. Who is it? Me. Who? Who is it? Who is that? Me. Tim. Tim Melville. She looks through the peephole at his giant face looking right back through it at her. She seems annoyed that he's here so early, but I don't feel like 7 o'clock is super early when it comes to yard work. It is yeah. on a Saturday. I don't know. I mean, if she had a specific time in mind, she should have mentioned it, I think. I don't know. I feel like it's pretty common knowledge. You don't start anything before 8 a.m. But if he showed up at 10, would that be l weirdly late? I feel like it is weirdly late. She leads him to the lawnmower. After she calls him Mr. Melville a few times, he asks her to call him Tim, insisting that his father is Mr. Melville, but unironically. When he calls her Mrs. Horton, she corrects him in return. Please, I'm not Mrs. I'm Miss Horton. Right up, Miss Horton. Anything you say. Later, Tim is working in the yard and she comes outside to read books at a patio table. One of the books she brought out is The Thornbirds, which is also written by Colleen McCullough, who wrote the novel adapted into this film. And when The Thornbirds was adapted into a miniseries, it starred Rachel Ward, who we had last week as Eleanor Agi in the slasher Night School. Piper Laurie herself would also make an appearance in the eventual TV miniseries of The Thornbirds. The other book is John Le Carre's The Honorable Schoolboy. Tim gets the lawnmower going, and for some reason she keeps looking up at him like he's doing something wrong? Yeah, I, or, or that she's annoyed that he's making so much noise while she's trying to read. But I can't tell if the problem is that, or if that she just keeps getting distracted by him. I think I that's just, what it's supposed to be. I think that's what it's supposed to be, but it seems more like she's annoyed because she's making this grimace the whole time. Eventually she stands to head back inside and brings out a tray of tea and cake and offers him a break. Tim scoops five heaping spoonfuls of sugar into his tea. He's excited to try a slice of the cake, too, and then asks how she's enjoying the book. What book? Yes, it's very interesting. I hope this moment was in the original novel, and the author just straight up called her own previous book very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Over the course of this conversation, we learn that Tim never learned to read. He struggled at school, so his parents pulled him out of class. He quit school at 15, and he's 24 now. He refers to her, as she requested, as Miss Horton, but now she corrects him again to call her Mary. Well, Dad says I should never call older people anything but Mr. or Mrs. or Miss. I'm not that old. Ah. He tells her it's time to get back to work, and she invites him to finish the job next Saturday if he pleases. He stands and tells her that he likes her, and her face is glowing. I like you. I really do. Or better than anyone except Mom and Dad and Dawny. She's my sister. <laughs> Thank you. That's very nice of you to say that. Think nothing of it. On his way back to the lawnmower, he does a silly impression of a kangaroo hopping on both legs at a time. She tells him she recognized it immediately. <laughs>
When Tim is done with the front yard, she says he can worry about the backyard next week with his father's permission. She offers the bathroom for him to wash up, and he's impressed by her home, and in particular, a loaded bookshelf. He picks up a centerpiece from the table and compliments the blue bowl full of flowers. She says it was a gift from her mother, and he hands it back to her. She watches him wander off to the bathroom to clean up and tucks Tim's pay into a note. My name and address are written on a piece of paper inside. Would you give this to your father so that he and your mother will know who I am? Right on. Thanks. Goodbye. Don't forget to give it to him. I never forget anything when I'm told. I didn't think you would. Goodbye, Miss Ford. Mary. Goodbye, Mary. Back at home, Tim's dad is surprised to hear his son call Miss Horton Mary, but he says he has her permission. He gives her note to dad, but dad doesn't read the paper, he only sees the cash. Ten dollar dues. We cut straight to next Saturday as Tim continues working in her yard and the music is so fucking weird. <laughs> and it only gets worse. <laughs> that, so my note is, is but this music. <laughs> yeah. It's like this weird circusy Danny Elfman instrumental and it does not feel right at all for a dramatic feature film. Mary invites him in for another tea break with cookies this time, and he uses less sugar when he notices her judgmental stare. That night, she opens a Rolodex to call Tim's home, and Tim answers. He's excited to hear from her, and his sister Donnie and mother notice his excitement. Mary asks to speak with Tim's father. She's asking Tim's father permission to employ Tim at her beach house over the weekend. After Dad gives his blessing, Mary tells Tim the help she needs, and he's positively giddy. When he hangs up the phone, he turns to his family. Gee, that... And I really wanted his sister to say, No, Tim, you were on the phone. I'm going to the beach with Mary. Now, this task is different than what she asked of him previously. Before, she needed legitimate work done, and he stayed for a shift, but this feels more like a social call. We cut to Mary driving him to her beach house. They stop first at a general store to collect a grocery order that Mary made from home. They switch cars here to a Jeep and continue on to the beach house. I've never been for a ride on the beach before. Well, this is fun. I don't think that this has to be a social call. Like, I mean, I assume that she's paying him. Yes. And in this instance, like, he's carrying stuff to the car for Yes. Her. No, I, yeah. I agree. It, it starts as a job. But on the other job, when he finished his shift, he went home. I think the difference here, though, is that presumably her beach house is far enough away that he has to stay to help her all weekend. Right. Yes. No, I think I think that's true. We dissolve from their arrival to Tim doing the same kind of yard work here at the beach house, but after a few hours, Mary thinks they're done for the day. So is this Jeep also her car? I think either it is and she is allowed to park it at the general store, or she rents a car from him when she's in town so that she can drive along the beach because her car wouldn't make it up to the house. Yeah, cause, but I was trying to figure out the like the logistics of she has a Jeep, but then she only comes to the beach house every once in a while, so this Jeep is just sitting outside yeah, like I feel like a rental. Yeah, it's either a rental or like this guy just has a big enough parking lot that he doesn't give a shit. Maybe she pays him a certain amount of money a month to just let her park the car there. Mary invites Tim surfing and tells him to change into a swimsuit. Tim is disappointed to see that Mary isn't wearing a swimsuit and he begs her to change into one and join him in the water. She says she's not even sure she has one, but he makes her go check. Yeah, when he said when she said surfing, uh the first shot we see of them driving along the water, it's completely flat and still. Right. And they like, still don't go surfing. What? Yeah. Well, and I think it's weird to presume that he knows how to surf. Isn't yeah. It? 
Um, unless surfing is like just like a slang term for being in the surf. Yeah, maybe. Mm. In the Hallmark movie, Candace Bergen says that she didn't plan on swimming, and when he begs her to, she takes her robe off and she's wearing a swimsuit already. So clearly she planned on swimming the whole time. Mary finds a black one-piece and walks with Tim to the beach. He's basically in a blue Speedo. Even properly dressed and standing on the beach, Tim has to drag her into the water. She complains the water's too cold, so he invites her for a beach run. That night, two cars pull up outside Tim's house simultaneously. Mary drops him off at the gate, and behind them, his sister Donnie pulls up with her boyfriend. So that's Mary Horton. Donnie makes out with her boyfriend a little, and he asks if she's happy. What do you think? Hmm. <laughs> she hops out, and her boyfriend Mick hawks a few times as he skids off down the street. Tim meets Donnie at the front door and shows her the book that Mary got for him, The Wind in the Willows. He offers to read some to her and she says maybe another time. Donnie sits with her parents in the den to talk about Miss Horton. She seems concerned about something, but they don't share her concern. Sounds as though you're a bit jealous of Miss Horton. Hmm? Jealous? Me? Well. <laughs> Donnie's very suspicious of Miss Horton and wonders aloud what she sees in her brother, which Tim's father finds a bit insulting. Yeah. Dad starts to pick on Donnie about her boyfriends, and she confesses to her parents that she just now got engaged, like a few hours ago. Everyone's very excited, though Dad wonders if he can afford a wedding, since Mick's family are a bit fancy. I wonder if that's really how you drop somebody off at that you just got engaged to. Yeah, you get out, and I'll honk a couple times as I skid off why, down why the street. Why don't you just tuck and roll, you yeah. know, like, <laughs> Jesus. But, but also that he's never even met The parents? parents? Yeah, that is weird. It occurs to Dad that Tim will take this poorly because he'll miss Donnie most of all. Because Mom and Dad don't miss Donnie. Well, he doesn't understand no, that yeah. she won't be living there anymore. Yes. We cut to Tim in Mary's passenger seat, and she notices he's not talking much. By the end of the shift, working in her yard, they've barely said a word to each other. Eventually, Mary asks what's bothering him, and it's hours before he offers any explanation. She asks him to read her a bit of Wind in the Willows, and after a couple pages, he breaks down. What's making you so unhappy? Hmm? She's going away. Who's going away? Donnie. She's getting married. I don't want her to get married and go away and live somewhere else. Mary promises she'll never leave him unless she dies or something. Which made me think that of course she's going to die yeah, in this right. movie. Yeah. Apparently, Tim's family has been keeping the concept of death secret from him, and so she is asked to explain it. She tells him that a heart is like a machine that can wear out, and eventually hearts stop and people stop. Like a clock that you can't wind up anymore. It's hard to believe that in 24 years of life, the concept of death hasn't come up. Yeah, you know, it's like he hasn't gathered the concept on his own. There wasn't a dead bird in the bush yeah. while you yeah. were like landscaping. Like, he didn't smash a cat. Who hasn't smashed a cat by 24? They, they just keep replacing his goldfish with the same looking goldfish. <laughs> they paint the same birthmark on its eye. That's why they keep dying. That's kind of, they call him Winky. They just have to take a needle and pop that fish eye every time. <laughs> That's why they only last about six hours. None of this happens. Yeah, <laughs> this is we a made all joke. that up. I'm sorry. For someone learning for the first time that he and everyone he loves will die, Tim takes it like a champ but he's terrified Mary will die before him. She hugs him to comfort him, and it reminds him of his mother and how she used to hug him before he grew up. I like you. I like you the same as I like my mum and dad. I don't like Donnie as much as I like Oh, you. not Tim. No, I like you better than I like Donnie. 
I like you too, Tim, very much. Tim's parents step out of a taxi outside a fancy hotel and the sound is dead quiet again, but then we can hear them speaking outside about meeting with Mick's parents, the Harringtons. They all take seats around a table to discuss the specifics of the wedding. The sound goes dead quiet again. Mick's mother thinks she has a say in what Donnie will wear to her own wedding, but there doesn't seem to be any disagreement. When Mick's parents address Donnie's parents by their surnames, they insist on using first names. For some reason, these rich people think first names are gross. Mick's parents ask about Donnie's brother, and Tim's parents say that he won't be at the wedding because he'll be too uncomfortable. Donnie insists he should be there, but everyone's acting super awkward about it, and they make plans to at least keep him out of the reception. It's like, did you just meet Tim or something? Why do you hate him so much that you won't invite him to family events? They were saying that he wouldn't react well to crowds. We should have had a single scene in the entire movie where he didn't react well to a crowd. Because he like seems a, like a completely normal person who can't read. Honestly, I think that's what the movie needed more of because I think he's he's too typical and average. Like, like there's nothing yeah. weird about, you know. This. I mean, I get that you never go for return. But you go some, right? There was There's only one scene in this entire movie where he has any behavioral problems whatsoever. Otherwise, right. he's just an average human the entire time. Yeah. That night, Mr. Melville calls Mary to announce the wedding and to ask Mary to babysit his son during the reception. Well, we don't think he should go. We don't think he could handle it. Mary thinks this is a completely normal ask and agrees to take Tim off the family's hands. She'll keep him at her house for the weekend. We cut to the wedding and everything goes according to plan. Dawnie looks like a fairy princess, doesn't she? You be sure and wait outside for Miss Horton like I told you, right? After the vows, we dissolve to Tim in Mary's car and they leave for the beach house again. He says his mom cried lots and she tries to explain that sometimes people cry because they're so incredibly happy and she expects that he will experience that someday. It's like, he has to know that by now, right? He's 24, he's seen people cry from happiness, yeah? Know. I mean, Donnie many, is his little sister. How Didn't many his times mom... in life do you cry from being happy? Just weddings, I guess. <laughs> what Richard's sitting here like never. I am no, miserable. No, no, I, I have. I had to go back to the to the early '90s when I was uh, gifted a Legend of Zelda: A Link to the Past. The and gold cartridge. Yeah, I was you like cried out of happiness. Oh, I cried out of happiness for that. It was all I ever wanted. <laughs> Still is. Legend of Zelda: Link to the Past is the best. It is. Or, or like that time when you, uh, when, when, like, well before you propose, and I'm like, I don't understand why people cry when they're proposed to, like, especially if they know it's coming. Like, just know yeah. that I'm not going to cry, and then yeah. I definitely cry. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I don't get it because I was so unhappy. I- <laughs> <laughs> That's why you cried. It's a different cry. <laughs> Over the weekend, they do paintings of the beach together. That night, she peeks in to check on him and pulls up the blankets to keep him warm. It's an uncomfortably maternal moment for the path their relationship will take. We dissolve to Mary in her office, and it seems like there's some kind of problem that will require her to travel for work. It's very ambiguous what she does for a living. Oh, some units were uh, interrupted. (laughs) We'll have to go to business town to take care of it. It's like, (laughs) I went last time. I think we'll both have to go this time. It's like, what are you doing? (laughs) But she's been there for a long time. Like there's they, only yeah. there's only one shot that indicates where she works, and it's a dildo factory. But they don't like <laughs> linger on it. No, there's, they they never indicate what she does. She'll be going on this trip with another coworker who's closer to her age. The next day, we see Mrs. Melville arriving home with groceries to her house, and their street is on like a fifteen percent grade, so she's winded. 
She breathes heavily as she checks the mail. Tim got a postcard for Miss Horton on her work trip. What'd she say? Be back Saturday. You miss her, don't you? Tim helps his mother carry the groceries inside. As Mary and her coworker arrive back in town, Mary rushes to a payphone to call Tim. Tim, I'm back. Well, I, I was wondering how the math works with with mailing a letter. Yeah. And saying what day you'll be back. It's like, did she give herself like a two day buffer? <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's like today is Wednesday, so if I mail it today, it'll get there by Friday. That's true. To say that you'll be back. Well, she said she'll be back Saturday, so it doesn't yeah. really matter when it gets there. Right, but but how, yeah, I was just wondering, like, what what day is this that yeah. he's receiving the letter? Yeah. We cut right to the two of them frolicking on the beach together. In the middle of the night, Tim has passed out on the couch, and Mary is watching a news segment about a school. Quite accidentally, somehow, I got drafted into a school for mentally retarded youngsters. It fascinated me from the very beginning. We cut right to Mary meeting with this man in person to inform herself. He tells her about an upcoming play that his students have written and will perform themselves. He's impressed to learn that she's taught Tim to read. He offers her a tour of the rest of the facility. I love learning uh, how people used to figure things out before the internet. Yeah. I <laughs> oh, learned about a school on the news I and saw, I drove there. I <laughs> saw a news segment and I just went there. <laughs> yeah. The man asks a lot of questions about Tim's condition. What's he like? Any speech abnormality? Any physical deformity? No. He's quite handsome, actually. What's he packing? No, he didn't ask that. <laughs> we cut back to the Melville home, and Mrs. Melville seems in distress in her front yard. She's sweating profusely and wipes her face with a wet towel, but suddenly she grimaces in extreme pain. The score here is so corny that it completely takes all the seriousness out of the scene. She stumbles through the house toward the phone to call 911, or whatever you call in Australia, maybe 116. Is that real? It's 911 upside down. Oh. <laughs> She can't reach the phone and passes out in a chair. Is there in Australia? <laughs> That's right. They're upside down. Yeah, they're upside down. We're not upside down. They're upside down. I mean, technically, we're standing on the top side of the planet. It makes more sense what we're doing. Hours later, Tim and Mr. Melville arrive home to the groceries half unpacked. Tim moves deeper into the house and finds her sitting in a chair unresponsive, and he knows immediately that something is wrong, and Mr. Melville begs her to speak to him. In the Hallmark movie, Tim finds her on the ground and he's like, silly mommy sleeping on the floor. <laughs> really? Yeah, he's much dumber in that movie. <laughs> I, I'm 100% sure she is dead in yeah, this movie. Yeah, I thought so too. Yeah. <laughs> well, because we had another, we, we, we've had like two false alarms. Right, yeah. Like when she comes home with the groceries and then there's another scene where she's like kind of huffing and I'm like, oh, here it comes. Yeah. Here it comes. So when I saw her on the chair, I thought, oh. Yeah. But then she's alive. Yeah, she starts mumbling. <laughs> I want to know why she's still alive here and we bother with the next 10 minutes of this film. Because we want to get the whole family together to find out what happened in, in the same time. They do call for an ambulance and eventually she does speak a bit. Oh. <laughs> She apologizes for soiling the chair. Once they get her loaded into an ambulance, Mr. Melville rides in the back with her. She makes a final request of her husband. Take care of Tim. Do the best thing for Tim. It's the kind of dialogue that no film character has ever survived. 
Sometime later, Donnie and Mick arrive at the hospital, and Dad tells her that Mom will be okay for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, she's going to be fine? I, yeah. I guess you he's, believed it too, right? Yeah, Aww. I was like, I'm getting freaking blue balls. Is she going to die or what? Yeah. Whoa, that's what gets you off. Blue balls for murder. <laughs> no, no, not murder. Just natural old lady yeah. death. <laughs> I, he bought that house on a grade for a reason. This is murder. <laughs> I guess he's either too optimistic or he doesn't have the heart to be honest with his children. Donnie relays her father's words to Tim, but he's less comforted than she was. Seems like Donnie is a little annoyed that someone told her brother what death is. Another few hours pass Wait and a, a doctor- Wait a minute. Like, that's ridiculous. Because if you were in this moment and his mother is dying and he doesn't know what death is, I think you should be grateful that yeah, anybody bothered to broach the subject before right now. Yeah. Because now you don't have to. You could just be like, oh, she's dead, and turn around and go home. <laughs> you don't have to talk to your brother ever again. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> Another few hours pass. <laughs> so dark. <laughs> Another few hours pass, and a doctor calls Mr. Melville aside for a conversation. She's gone, mate. We did all we could. Mr. Melville asks to see her before trying to tell the kids what happened. He kisses her on the cheek and then backs out of the room weeping. When Mr. Melville tells his children, Donnie is instantly sobbing into Mick's shoulder. But Tim sees that his father needs comforting and stands to join him for a walk. The men seem to walk all the way from the hospital to the beach, but maybe it's not that far away. Mary told me about dying. I know what dead is. It's just like saying goodbye and going away, isn't it? That's about the size of it, son. Except we never got to say goodbye. The next day, Mr. Melville calls Mary to ask another weirdly insensitive favor. Tim's own family isn't comfortable having him at the funeral for his own mother, even though he took his mother's death better than any of them did. Yeah. Mary is quick to agree to watch him during the burial. Mary heads to the Melville home... That's what sensitive it would be, too. Because he, he hangs up the phone and he starts weeping. I was like, no, you're in the pee chair. Oh, Aww. God. He's, that's why he's crying. It wasn't pee. Oh, no. no. I think she says I wet the chair. Oh, did she? Okay. Mary heads over to the Melville home to collect Tim before the funeral. Mr. Melville seems surprised when he sees her at the door. Maybe he thought from his son's description that she would be older. Donnie decides that now is the proper time to air her many grievances about Tim's relationship with an older woman. Donnie seems completely blindsided by the decision to have Mary watch Tim during the funeral. She accuses Miss Horton of sleeping with her brother, and the rest of the family are mortified by her behavior. Mick backs her up, though, suggesting that the rumors have spread through town. Well, you must have realized what people were thinking. I mean, I mean a middle-aged woman with a young man is just... Well, you bloody creep. You miserable, puffed-up bastard! I ought to knock your teeth in! You hang on, Ron! You just watch it, Mick. You take it easy, Dad. You don't let him get your gun. But we've never seen anything about that other no, than it, Donnie. It could be Mick just bullshitting to support his wife. Well, but I think that, yeah, okay, fair that we haven't seen anything, like, around town. Nobody's talking. Like, the family hasn't even discussed it, like, up until this point. Right. Like, and to be fair, Mary has done nothing. Right. And so... 
But she has been taking this young boy to the beach she, house. And she has. And so, like, I, I don't doubt that there could be rumors. And, and maybe yeah. Donnie is correct in, in saying all this stuff. But The only people I can imagine would be spreading rumors like that, other than Donnie and Mick themselves, would be the dude at the general store who keeps loaning them a Jeep to go off to their beach house together, who might not know anything about Tim. Yeah. Or the neighbor who kind of set them up. And it's like, I should have just kept that for myself. But also, who cares? Yeah. Like, nobody's being hurt and everybody's happy in this situation. Like, it is okay. Yeah. Tim has to get between his father and brother-in-law to prevent a fight. Tim leaves with Mary despite Donnie's complaints. You're very, very wrong, my dear. Mr. Melville follows them outside and makes a good point to Mary. Don't you take no notice of them, Miss Horton. The only one who matters now is Tim. He explains to her his wife's last words and admits that Miss Horton seems like the best option Tim has. Is it bad that Ron is my favorite character in this movie? No, that's fair. I think that's accurate. Tim is weirdly cool with missing his mother's funeral. When they sit down in her Does car... Does he know, though? I, I think he has to know. He knows what happens to, to people when you die. No, but he doesn't, though. Up until, like, a couple weeks ago, he didn't know what happened to people when they die. Why would he know that they, they have a ceremony around it? I don't know. I mean, it I seemed like everyone was getting prepared for a funeral. I I don't think yeah, he has maybe. any idea. And they took him away so that he would just be okay for the day. Yeah. When they sit down in her car, Mary makes a weird sound. <laughs> What's the matter with you, Mary? Are you laughing or crying? <laughs> I don't know. Later, at her beach house, Tim starts to cry and she holds him. They take a somber walk along the beach. We cut to Mom's funeral unnecessarily. We know what a funeral looks like and nothing unusual happens here. It only serves to remind us how cruel his family is to their own son by not inviting him. I, I mean, I honestly don't know that it's the end of the world. If if we knew that he would have, like, a violent outburst or something like that in this situation, I think that it's a reasonable thing because it's not like he needs this for emotional closure or, like... like, th like then why are they going? Why because do they, they deserve to go and he doesn't? They aren't him. Like, they have different emotional needs. Right, but three people can attend a funeral and one of them can be flipping out and that's fine. But you should take him to the funeral and let him experience it however he's going to experience it. Because it's his mom. It just seems totally fucked up to say, you don't get to see your the last ceremony involving your mother above ground. That's that's the end of That's the end of her chapter. And we didn't bring you because we didn't want you to freak out or make anybody uncomfortable. And it's like, it's this funeral is literally for three people. It's for Donnie, it's for Dad, and it's for Tim. And Tim doesn't even get to be there. Yeah, that's fair. And and he is at least aware that they buried her because yeah. he, he mentions it later. Yeah. The next morning, Mr. Melville wakes up at Mary's beach house. I guess they stayed the night after the funeral. Mary's headed out on another work trip, but she tells Mr. Melville that Tim knows where everything is here. Back in her office, we see Mary having drinks with the same coworker from her work trip. They're sharing some J&B whiskey, which we saw very recently in Don't Torture a Duckling. It seems like the film only vaguely commits to setting these two up as a potential couple, but it never goes anywhere. I kept thinking that it was like she has the choice between Tim and this guy from work, yeah. but it, it seems fairly platonic, actually. By the end of the scene, it just seems like he's a friend offering some honest advice on her relationship with this mentally challenged kid. I think we could have done without the entire going to work yeah plots. It, it doesn't really add anything i mean it shows that i think it, it, i think it helped yeah i think it helped me realize that she's independently wealthy because she's at least working for it yeah 
Mary returns to the beach house where Tim and his father have spent the entire week. It's late at night and Tim waited up to see her. Mary walks him to bed and tucks him in and then finds Mr. Melville crying back at the kitchen table. A few days later, Mr. Melville, Tim, and Mary are hanging out when Mr. Melville presents Mary with all his finances and his will. He had planned with his wife to send Tim to a decent home when they passed away, but now he thinks Mary might make a better caretaker. You see, Mary, I'm dying. We'll put it this way. I don't want to live. I just can't make myself want to live anymore. I'm running down like a clockwork monkey. Which is weirdly close to how she described death to Tim, except in this case, he seems to be talking about suicide, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those things. I'm not quite sure if he meant suicide or if... He's just going to give up yeah, magically. Well, yeah. but like he could be sick and he might not fight it. Okay, maybe. I feel like he would have mentioned that if that was the case. I mean, I feel like saying I'm dying kind of means that you're sick. But then to clarify or to put it this way, I don't want to live means I'm not dying. I should specify I'm not well, actually dying. It's more like I'm dying and I'm going to embrace that. Right. We're all dying in the Sylvia Plath sense of the word. <laughs> I was going to think of Royal Tenenbaums. He's like, you weren't dying, but I'm going to live. <laughs> <laughs> he confesses that all he wants is to lie under the ground with his late wife, and Mary gives him a tearful hug. Tim sees them hugging and flips out before running away. When Mary catches up, he explains himself. You don't like me anymore. Simulate now. I've seen you hugging him all the time, and I want you to hug me, but you don't. But you do it to him. I think, I feel like... This is probably one of the scenarios that his family has encountered in the past. Right. And that's why they didn't want him at weddings and funerals. Because but this is the closest thing to conflict we'll get in the entire story. Yeah. Other than Donnie being kind of a bitch. Yeah. I, yeah. I think, I think we needed at least to ha have him have another one of these. I don't want to call it a tantrum, but. Kind of a meltdown a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Yeah. Just like a minor meltdown. But yeah, I think you're right, though. Then you invite Mary to the thing. So she could go after him and you can continue experiencing right. the yeah. wedding or the funeral or whatever it is. Like, I understand not wanting to have to miss out but on that. But even if he freaks out and starts kicking the member. coffin or whatever, it's like, it's his mom's funeral. He can do whatever he wants at it. <laughs> well, I what? mean. Yes. If he's putting himself or others in danger. Yeah. If he pulls out a gun, then yeah, put him down. <laughs> but. Okay, he, he runs away, like he ran away here, and he runs into traffic. You know, somebody's got to go after the kid. Yeah, that's that's the dad's job to do right now. <laughs> it won't be the first time he's chased after his son because his son went off. It's just It just seemed cruel to me. We learn from Tim that his father has been blabbing to everyone about his impending suicide. It's weird the things they decide to shelter Tim from. <laughs> but then his dad is like, I want to die and be with your mom underground. She tries to comfort him with a hug, and when they get closer, they're suddenly kissing. She resists it at first, but then gives herself over to it. The music is very melodramatic as usual, and eventually Mary catches herself and backs away. Ah! Dear God. Tim doesn't understand what's wrong, and she leads him back to the house. In the Candace Bergen version, she's more forceful in her rejection. She's like, whoa, I didn't want that. Don't tell anyone that happened. It doesn't even feel like they're in a relationship huh. in that movie. We cut right to Mary meeting with the man from the school for special needs children again. She's apparently confessing her love for Tim to the man, and he suggests they get married, which I don't think this man would do. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah. Why don't you marry him? 
a little crazy. Is it? Is it really? John, that really is crazy. Why not marry him? I, I feel like it would tidy things up, I guess, as far as his the financial situation. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And legal guardianship and any, you know, if he's, because if he's declared like mentally deficient and can't take care of himself, then getting married might be an option to get around some of that. Right. Yeah. But then we do this Spider-Man decision making, which is what I call it, where someone tells you what you should do and in the next scene you're doing it. So we cut right to the wedding. There's no proposal or anything. There's no fancy planning. It's already underway. Jim Henson dude from the school is standing behind them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, that noticeably absent from the wedding, though, is Tim's sister, Donnie. Yeah. Also, they awkwardly ask Mary if uh, they could take Tim for the day so he wouldn't cause the trouble at the, the wedding. wedding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want him at his own reception. <laughs> Not that I approve of this turn of events, but I can't imagine anyone approving of this story with the gender swapped. A 40-something-year-old man marrying a sexy and mentally handicapped 24-year-old girl. People would just be like, that's inappropriate. You shouldn't be doing that. It's hard not to see the pairing as the younger person being taken advantage of in any case. And I get that he seems to genuinely like her. That's not the point. Well, I think that my takeaway from this, though is that even if it were gender swapped, I think it would be okay if they did some of the same things they did in this, where she is not actively seeking out this relationship for the vast majority of the relationship. She is just honestly and earnestly caring for another human being. Yeah. And she's moving into the caretaker role first. Right. Exactly. And, and, and then, you know, they develop a closeness after that. Right. Uh, You know, but I, I feel like, you know, you might be right in in that everyone's going to assume that the man has alternative motives from. But if that doesn't matter one. to them, then that's fine. It, ultimately, what Ron said is right that Tim is the one who matters, and if you guys love each other and it's not hurting anybody, then you do what's right for you guys. And it isn't hurting anybody because right. because she does genuinely care for him and she's not using him in any way. Right. Exactly. In fact, if anything, he's using her because he couldn't have this life without her. Right. He'd be put in a home or something, presumably. Correct. Not that he knows that. Right. They arrive back at her beach house, and he walks around the car to open the door and walk her to the porch. She gives him the key to open the door, and they move inside. I expected him to carry her over the threshold or something, but they just walk in. Wordlessly, she leads him to the bed, and beside it, they begin to undress each other. They stand face-to-face completely naked, staring into each other's eyes, and in bed, she strokes his face, and they kiss a lot. In the morning, she finds Tim sitting up in bed, looking concerned, and asks him what's wrong. You told me that one day, I'd be so happy that I'd cry. (laughs) We see them running along the beach together again, and then back in bed again. Their beach house honeymoon is eventually interrupted by a phone call from Mr. Melville's neighbor. Apparently, they hadn't seen him come out of the house in a while, and they found him deceased in the home. The audio on the phone fades out, which, if you're going to do, you need to leave faded out for the rest of the scene. But then the phone call fades back in after the important (laughs) part of the conversation. It's a weird choice, and it feels like they just didn't know how you're supposed to do this scene. Or I thought it was just another audio (laughs) drop. I was like, is is that person... Someone's just leaning on a... On a knob in the editing bay. <laughs> or it was like, or did they just stop talking and... <laughs> anyway, you probably know what I would have said in this next part. <laughs> so come and get this body. The caller doesn't give her time to react to her father-in-law's death and instead demands she come back to the house to make arrangements immediately, which she agrees to do. 
Which is odd that the neighbor is saying, can you come back and make arrangements? Yeah. Like, wouldn't the coroner or a medical examiner yeah. or something be, be calling? I feel like it's also kind of shitty for Mr. Melville to kill himself the day after his son's wedding. Like, that's not going to come up at their future anniversaries. Like, oh, you know what I just remembered? Dad well, died today. He might not have. Yeah, it could have been like a week later. I don't know. But well, he, we don't he, know. We don't know how much time himself. has passed, but you don't know that he killed himself. I do. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> we cut right to father's funeral, and Tim is completely fine. There's no reason he shouldn't have been at the previous funeral, and probably even at Donnie's wedding reception. I kind of wish he'd been like, this is really nice. We should have done one of these for mom. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, there she is. <laughs> what are the chances? <laughs> Why'd you teach him to read? Now he knows that this is his mom's grave. <laughs> After the ceremony, Donnie picks another fight with Mary, and Tim jumps to her defense. He begs Donnie to give Mary another chance and says that he just wants things to be how they were because he loves Donnie so much. Donnie just says, okay, and smiles like it's all fixed, and that's the end of the movie. This moment really could have used another draft. Like, he could have convinced her for longer. It could have been more convincing that she was going along with his plan or that she understood why he cared. Well, or or had a moment where... Mary made a case yeah. for for their relationship, and then when Donnie talked to Tim, she's like, "Oh, she's right. Yeah, they they do just love each other, and it's just genuine." And all the closure here is between Donnie and Tim. There's no like moment of reconciliation with Mary. Yeah, they just turn around and the siblings walk their spouses out of the cemetery, and we fade to blue for white credits. <laughs> so that's the uh, that's the movie Tim, a uh, very low budget Australian film. It's it's sweet. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit sloppily made, but it was very very cheap. I th- I think the score detracts from it a lot. I would love for someone to take a whack at just replacing the entire soundtrack to this movie. But uh, and it also it, it brings up some like difficult questions. I feel like that are very interesting. Whether this is an acceptable relationship or not. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that that was. That was it for me. Like I was, I was thinking a lot about these things, and you know, came to terms. I'm like, there's a lot of people that are probably in relationships where there is an intelligence gap. I mean, look at ours. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> Wait, is she making fun of me, Richard? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's why but- I keep you around, Richard. <laughs> that it's important to, to to make the distinction that nobody is being coerced or forced or taken advantage of in this situation i feel like uh there's probably relationships that people don't even frown on that are more unfair you know two people that are of the same intelligence level but where the guy's just abusive and people are like that's a totally fine relationship yeah, exactly. and it's like what no it's not exactly <laughs> yeah no because yeah no these two people love hurt. each other they care Nobody about each other is being taken advantage of yeah. and like there is genuine care for each other and, and so, like, they waited until marriage to get it on there you go very appropriate yeah yeah for the time <laughs> for the time 1981 this is right when Richard, premarital sex was invented in uh saving yourself from marriage no <laughs> <laughs> no so that's tim i think it's sweet um thumbs this one's hard for me i give it a thumbs up i have no problems with this movie i mean like I, not that i have no problems with this movie yeah 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 there are moments that it could be better but just like, production value issues yeah 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 but it's uh i, th- I thought it was good i liked it yeah richard uh I will give it a thumbs up. Thumbs down then. Oh. All right, good. Oh. I was waiting on your answer. 
I I think the the synopsis was something along the lines of the whole that, family is upset about it, or or that there are massive rumors spreading around. Right. Yeah. Like like that Mary's going to be ostracized by the community. Uh, and I was like, I was waiting for that to happen. I kept waiting. I was like, oh man, like when, when's this big like like yeah. having it out about Mary and people like like look giving her dirty looks in yeah, the store. Yeah, she's going to lose her like job yeah, because yeah, it yeah. comes out in some business meeting. Honestly, I think there was probably a much more interesting movie to be had here that wasn't had that would have confronted these things a little bit more head on rather than it just being Donnie. Well, you'll be shocked to learn that the Hallmark version is much worse. <laughs> So worse um, as a movie or more dramatic, like in terms it's, of reactions? it's really boring. Their relationship is never remotely genuine. And the wedding seems more like, a, uh, oh, I'm going to get free gardening. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't seem like two people who care about each other in any way. Trying to f- figure out a way to shoehorn a reference in that uh, she's having him do the gardening and then brings him inside to hook him up to a VR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's wearing his suspenders and his yellow shirt yeah um yeah so uh the only thing that i was thinking that that kind of changes the flavor of this movie potentially is what if he's not mel gibson handsome yeah you know like you know and 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 the the instructor or whoever from that school kind of you know brings it up you know in terms of what it what is uh he look like but you know, I think that would have actually been a more interesting movie if he wasn't a very handsome man. Yeah. Because then you're really thinking about, like, what is her motivations? Yeah. Is this guy just eye candy for your front yard? Or, yeah, no. I mean, it does feel like it's a genuine relationship, but you're right. It's It would be interesting. I, I feel like it would be considered more acceptable if he weren't smoking hot. It would be more acceptable. I feel like people would be less accepting of it. I think people would be less judgmental of her. They wouldn't be like, "Oh, you, you're just with him because he's like a boy toy." Like, "Oh, you must actually." Yeah, but care I feel like people kid, would that actually. That kid is ugly. But I feel like people would look at him and be like, "Oh, I get it. Like, it makes sense. You know, like oh, why maybe. you would want him." And and otherwise, they'd be like, "I don't get it." So you're saying the people that are upset with her are jealous. half jealous. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they're like, that's so inappropriate. And why did you do that before me? <laughs> um, what are we doing letterboxed? So I have this one at uh, 47 out of 120. It is below eyewitness and above ruckus. All right. I have it at 50, uh, which puts it below American pop, but above the postman always rings twice. I have it in 76, which is just under the Sea Wolves and just above Under the Rainbow. Our writer-director here was Michael Pate. He's famous for mostly acting credits, including Vittorio and Hondo, a role he reprised for the 1967 TV series adaptation. He was Sir Loxley in The Court Jester with Danny Kaye and Detective Sergeant Vic Mattern on Matlock Police. He also shows up as the president in both The Return of Captain Invincible and Howling 3. Return of Captain Invincible, if you're not familiar, is an Alan Arkin film where he plays the titular superhero, Captain Invincible, facing off against Mr. Midnight, played by Christopher Lee. And it's awful. And it's a musical. I can't believe you watched it. This was Michael Pate's lone directorial effort. He also has a soundtrack credit for the Return of Captain Invincible for songs he performs in the film. Writer Colleen McCullough 
wrote the novel adapted into this, but also the novel adapted into The Thorn Birds. She's also credited in the 1996 TV movie. The music here is from Eric Jupp. He scored 88 episodes of a TV series called Skippy about a boy and his pet kangaroo. And from the description, it sounds like an Australian lassie, basically. Skippy saves the day. Things go wrong and Skippy finds kids in wells and shit. I think Jupp's work is probably better suited for a lassie-type show than for a feature film with dramatic characters. Editor David Stiven. After this, he cuts Road Warrior, both Crocodile Dundees, and Dark Man. Piper Laurie played Mary Horton. Director Pate considered Deborah Kerr, Gene Simmons, and Glenda Jackson. Gene and by Simmons, Gene Simmons would have been I mean J E A N Simmons. Uh, I mean, the kiss at the wedding would have been like dramatic. <laughs> kiss at the wedding. That's good. And I do, I do love Gene Simmons as an option. Yeah. Uh, I like that you you admit that there's only two Crocodile Dundees. Yes. I'm, I'm, the third one's not a Crocodile Dundee movie, though. It, like, you're talking about the the most excellent Crocodile Dundee. No, ever? Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles. I thought that was the second one. No, that's the third one. What's the second one? Just Crocodile Dundee 2? Yeah, Crocodile Dundee 2. They go back to Australia. All right. Then he edited the two Crocodile Dundees. <laughs> Director Pate considered Glenda Jackson. Jackson was interested but unavailable until 1982, so Piper Laurie was cast based on the strength of her performance in 1977's Ruby, in which she played the title character. She's also Sarah Packard in The Hustler, Margaret White, mother of Carrie White in Carrie. They're all going to Auntie M in Return to Oz, and she's also Mrs. Karen Olson in Robert Rodriguez's best film, The Faculty. She also revealed in her 2011 autobiography that she and co-star Gibson had a one-night stand during the production, despite their 25-year age difference and her marriage. Mel Gibson played Tim Melville. We saw him as the titular Mad Max last season, which is where director Pate found him for the audition, and Gibson was back recently for Gallipoli. He shows back up in The Year of Living Dangerously for Weir, He's probably best known, if not for the Mad Max movies, for the Lethal Weapon movies. He was also in Braveheart, Maverick, Disney's Pocahontas, and Casper. More recently, he's best known for his own directorial efforts, like Passion of the Christ, Apocalypto, and possibly for a plethora of racist, homophobic, sexist, and anti-Semitic comments he has made, usually under the influence on his way to various jails. Alwyn Kurtz played Ron Melville. He was Christian Nielsen in The Earthling, William Holden's buddy, who he visits when he starts his hike. Pat Evison played M. Melville, Meg Nielsen in The Earthling, so she plays Alwyn Kurt's wife in both films. She played his wife in The Earthling, and she played his wife in this. Peter Gwynn played Tom Ainsley. Who's Tom Ainsley? I imagine it's her co-worker at her office. Oh, it must be, yeah. Uh, he was Lady Sarah's butler in Baz Luhrmann's Australia. Michael Caulfield played John Martinson. Who's John Martinson? <laughs> I imagine that's his her co-worker. Oh, that must be, yeah. Everybody is. There's a teacher guy. Oh, it could be that guy, yeah. <clears throat> Not many other acting credits for Michael Caulfield, except he served on the set of Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith as an actor's tutor. Alan Penny played Mr. Thompson. Who's Mr. Thompson? No. <laughs> uh, he was Harlan. <laughs> I think he's talking to you. <laughs> no, Mr. Thompson is actually the guy at the grocery store. And I thought that immediately when she walks in, she says, Mr. Thompson? And I wanted him to not react. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but Mr. Thompson, uh, he was Harlan in The Earthling, and later he's Spud McCormick in Howling 3. Bill Charlton played Builder. We just had him as Jones in The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, and last season as Joe in My Brilliant Career. Ray Barrett played Man Outside Hotel. Apparently he's just literally walking outside the hotel as they go in to meet with Mick's parents, but he doesn't have any lines. He's literally just a background extra for the shot. 
and we just had him as Farrell, the policeman, in our Minnesota review of The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. We also had him as Parnell in The Earthling last season. He provides the voices for the Thunderbirds TV series and film, specifically John Tracy and The Hood. And more recently, he was Ramsden in Baz Luhrmann's Australia. Did he say Thunderbirds when he meant Thornbirds? No, Thunderbirds. Thunderbirds? You yeah. didn't mean Thunderbirds. Yeah, okay. that's why he does voices. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was like, I was like, oh, you should, you should. I was like, he's going to have to fix that. Yeah, you're going to have to fix that. You think it's gonna... the Thunderbirds with the little puppets. I think that's everything for Tim. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we're Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Continental Divide which IMDb describes like so. A hard-nosed Chicago journalist has an unlikely love affair with an eagle researcher. We leave you now with the trailer for Continental Divide. Hey, Suchak, hell of a column today. He's a newspaper man with a big name in a big city. I know what really happened on Murphy Street. And if I know, pretty soon Chicago will. I don't know what you're talking about. Enjoy a dessert! He has friends in high places. He gets vacations he didn't even ask for. The Rocky Mountains. Oh, so you've heard of them. Good night. Two check. Go to Wyoming. You gotta stay healthy. Look, you go on. Leave me here to die. I always wanted to die in the mountains. Get the view and everything. She lives where the air is thin. She's an expert in her field. Her work means everything to her. That's a bald eagle you're shooting at, and the American government takes it very personally. She lives alone, and she likes it that way. She's into oxygen. Better lay off those today. He's into nicotine. Every day, for 13 years, some smart Alex are trying to tell me to quit. And actually, they were both very happy until they met. Out! This Porter, I'll die out there. Life is full of little trade-offs. She found him annoying. He found her aloof. It's nature's way. She found herself losing her privacy. <gasps> he found himself losing his nerve. I'll be going now. See you later. Take what you like and lock up and you leave, okay? And in the end, she found herself saving him anyway. But that's life on the Continental Divide. Continental Divide. It's about friendship. Social encounters. Togetherness. And survival. Never touch anyone on the street. They'll think you need help, and they'll kill you. But mostly, it's about saying goodbye. Over. And get off the next stop. And over. As far as Cedar Rapids. And over again. John Belushi. Blair Brown. In Continental Divide.